Hey, it's Martine. Uh, Before we start today's show, just a heads up that this is a story about pregnancy with all of its ups and downs, joys, and also some complications and loss. So just take care when and with whom you listen. And thanks. Here's the show. So for people who don't know, tell us what a doula is. A doula is someone who is there to provide uh, information to make sure that you are informed of every decision you make along the way. That is Mimi Bingham speaking with Akila Johnson, a health reporter for The Post. Mimi is a doula in Houston. She's sitting with Elise Hanlon, one of her clients. She was able to be, focus on being my support system and holding my hand. <laughs> I know why you're laughing. <laughs> and holding my hand. I want to know why Elise was laughing. I want to laugh, too. <laughs> <laughs> well... <laughs> Um, so for me, I provide it, individualized support. Individualized support. It's customary. <laughs> Mimi and Elise, as you can probably hear, have developed a pretty strong bond. You know how they show births on TV. You always have the the mom squeezing the dad's hand, and the dad is like in excruciating pain, falling to the floor. I'm opposite. I need I need pain to be focused somewhere else on me so I don't feel the contractions. So I was asking lovely Mimi to squeeze my hand. (laughs) I was asking her to squeeze my hand. She was being so delicate with me, and I'm like yelling at her, you're not squeezing hard enough. (laughs) I'm telling her to squeeze, and I think she's looking at me like I'm crazy because I need her to like nearly break my hand. That's how bad I want her to squeeze my hand. And she comes down and whispers in my ear so gently, Want me to punch you in the face? <laughs> okay, but did she punch you in the no! face? <laughs> I would never. No, no, it was just to get the laugh, and it definitely distracted me. It was amazing. <laughs> and my hand was okay, so we didn't have to worry about any damages. <laughs> and we were dying. It was so funny, and it was hilarious to see the middle of his face. Because... Despite the humor of this moment... What Elise and Mimi are describing here was something that was actually pretty profound. America is experiencing a worsening maternal health crisis. It's already considered the worst place to give birth among high-income nations. And it's also where Black women are a lot more likely to die from childbirth or suffer serious complications. So the kind of bond that Mimi and Elise have can be life-saving what women, but Black women in particular, experience when they are pregnant, when they are in labor and in that postpartum period. And you think about the severe medical complications, but also the fatalities, much of it is preventable. Like Mm. the overwhelming majority of it is preventable. From the newsroom of The Washington Post, this is Post Reports. I'm Martine Powers. It's Wednesday, February 28th. Today, how a coalition of Black birth workers in Houston is confronting a maternal health emergency in their community and beyond, and how they are fighting back, one very firm, squeezing hand at a time.
So, Akila, you went to Texas to connect with a group of Black birth workers, and one of them was Mimi Bingham, who we just heard her voice. Um, tell me about her and what did you observe with her and the work that she has been involved with? You know, I think you can hear from Mimi's voice when we just heard. She's got a very soothing presence, a very calming presence. Um, I described the, her office in her house where she sees a lot of her, her doula clients as like the relaxation room at a spa because when you step in her presence, you just immediately kind of feel put at ease, which, you know, is what you want from a doula, that being able to um, know what people need when they need it to kind of help set the stage and center people to focus on Pregnancy, childbirth, but then also postpartum care. What was it like being in her space? I was immediately struck by how open Mimi was. And I said, I want to be a fly on the, on the wall of your life. Yes, flies on the wall. Yes, that's okay. <laughs> the dog would be whining in the background, the music would be going, but there would be laughter, and before you know it, everything would settle. He's like, thank you for seeing me today. Of course. I'm so happy I worked out this morning. Thank you. Whatever she needs. Um, so, let's see. Okay, so I have a whole list. When I think about the conversations that I got to witness Mimi engaged in, a lot of it is empathetic listening. But, you know, she has a kind of standard checklist of questions that she asks. You know, she talks about um, what to expect, also patient rights and patient autonomy. I know this a lot. So I want to take a second and back up here and just have you explain, like, what exactly is it that a doula does? Because a doula isn't a doctor. No. But they're there during the birth. Yes. I explain, like, what, what is their job both during pregnancy and uh, during actual labor? So they are non-clinical. So they are, they are a non-clinical birth worker. So if you think back to labor coaches, Lamaze coaches, right, there was a big moment where on TV you would see a Lamaze coach and they're, like, practicing the breathing. The breathing, right? <laughs> yeah. Right. I did not witness any heavy breathing um, <laughs> while while watching Mimi work, but they do practice breathing techniques. They practice labor techniques. So they, the thing that you'll quite often hear is doulas provide physical, emotional, educational support. They're guardrail. There's there's they're safeguards hmm. against bad things happening. Ultimately, they are advocates. So they advocate for patients. They advocate on behalf of families. So they can share their concerns with the family, and then the family has the agency to say, yes, no, I don't want to do this. We should do this. We should move ahead. And so one of the things that Mimi quite often has to remind patients is that they can pause, they can ask questions of their doctor, and they can actually say, no, I'm not comfortable with that. Are there alternative treatments? Is that the only thing? Can we wait and see? Am I okay? Is my baby okay? One of the reasons that people are advocating for there to be more doulas in the maternal health kind of ecosystem is because they decrease instances of unwanted and unnecessary interventions. And I think it's really important to stress the unnecessary part because 
you know, Mimi is very clear-eyed when she says when the situations call for these interventions, when they are necessary, by all means, you better move heaven and earth to make it happen. And she says you got to fight for them when you need them, even as you're fighting sometimes to, like, keep them at bay and keep them away. So tell me a little bit about the story of how Mimi got into this work. And I understand that part of that is from her own experience um, in childbirth. It is. I never wanted a mom to experience or feel what I had felt. It was just terrible, a lonely feeling. So it's April 2005. I didn't really have the best prenatal care because I wasn't stable. At one point, when I was seven months pregnant, I didn't feel right. It wasn't like a big gush or anything, but it was definitely leaking. Now she knows she was leaking amniotic fluid. And she goes to the doctor. And they noticed that my placenta was abrupting. They essentially tell her, your placenta is detaching from the uterus. There's not a lot we can do for you. Go home and come back when you're in labor. Hmm. So they send her home, but not before asking her repeatedly if she was on meth. And I'm like, no, because my blood pressure was elevated. And they say, well, most times it comes from drug use. You know, now that I know what I know and I'm in birth work, like, that's ridiculous. You know, research shows that Black women are more likely to be drug tested when they go to the hospital. Pain is more likely to be dismissed and not believed. And so... Yeah, what was her reaction to being asked about At the time, she says she was just really confused. It was just very odd that they kept asking me if I had done meth. But you're at the hospital, presumably in the ER, and they do this ultrasound, and they say to you that your placenta is abrupting. Knowing what you know now, what does that mean? Well, that means that um, for sure not sent home. For sure, not sent home, especially at seven months pregnant. A number of things could have been done. Fast forward two weeks, she goes into labor. So she does what they tell her. She goes back to the hospital. Um, I don't I don't know how I got to the hospital. I probably block it out. Um I basically just remember laboring for a long time. You know, Mimi just recounts a night of being in the hospital by herself. Like, I don't know. I know at least a day passed. She said she labored by herself. She spent the majority of her time alone in a hospital room. You know, no one there besides the nurses coming in and out occasionally to get vitals. I just remember at one point... Hearing her heartbeat kind of change. And she's listening to the monitor start to get very erratic. She basically is listening to the baby's heartbeat start to decline and take too long to come back up. Hmm. I just decided to take the fetal monitoring off. Um, 
Because if she passed, I didn't want to hear it. So. And she labors by herself. No one was in there. I remember looking down and she came out on the bed. You know, I don't know if it's because I wanted to see it or if it's because I want to remember this way. I don't know, but I saw her breathing or trying to. And I just remember sitting up and just looking um, and crying very loudly. I didn't know what to do. And the nurses weren't there? It was just the two of them in the room. Her daughter came out on the edge of the bed. She said that's when she pushed the call button, and the nurses came in and whisked her away. Oh, my gosh. You know, in the hours after, her friend Dietra just describes her as dazed, and she describes herself as dazed, you know? She's still feeling very alone. I will say, when I was transferred to postpartum, they were wonderful. Um, They were very respectful. They did um, photos, Uh, they gave her clothes, Uh, they gave her a little baby Bible. They offered for me to um, keep her with me. So I would have her with me until finally, you know, they had to have the counselor come in and talk to me and say, you know, this will be probably the last time that I could call for her um, and that I needed to reach out to the funeral home to come get her. It sounds like they showed you more compassion after she passed than they did while she was still in utero. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, she struggled, you know? She named her daughter. And so you named your daughter Kaya. What does Kaya mean? And can you tell us why, how you spelled it and why you chose to spell it the way that you did? <laughs> I spelled it the way I did, K-A-I-Y-I-A. Um, just because when you write it out, um, you can see a smiley face. That's why I put all those extra eyes. That smile stays with you, I'm sure, till this day. That it thought. does, and she does too. Yeah. I I can't imagine an experience like that. What I mean, how did she process that, and and what kind of effect did it have on her? Her birth work is her processing that. It's been really tough when you learn new information and you realize the harm that was done to you in previous births of my own, it's hard not to just carry that anger, that hurt. And so I try to just turn it into a positive by advocating and being there for moms now, being the person that provides information that I feel like I was never provided. So just to go back for a second, 
how did Mimi actually make that turn into doing this kind of work? Like, how did she even realize that there was uh, this community? She had a second pregnancy. She got pregnant again after Kaya, and she ended up having an emergency C-section when she was pregnant with her son, Rashad. And she hemorrhaged during that pregnancy. There were a lot of complications. It was very traumatic. And through it all, she felt like she still was not getting the support and care and nurturing that she really wanted. And then she gets pregnant a third time with her son, Ahmad. And this time she was determined not to have a repeat of times one and two. She was like, I cannot go through that again. I have to do something different. And so she did. And she ended up finding this community of birth workers, doulas, midwives, who really changed her entire life, really, in perspective of the way birth should be. And that introduced her to a new career path and life trajectory. She was an accountant at the time. This was something she never even thought was a possibility for her life. And here we are. And so it was really through the support that she got while pregnant that third time with her son Ahmad that she thought, I want to recreate this experience for other women. Coming up, more on the challenges of giving birth in America and what Mimi and others have learned about how to reduce the harms. We'll be right back. So, Akila, how much do you think that Mimi's experiences in childbirth reflect what other women experience and, in particular, what Black women experience? Her experience is not an outlier for a lot of Black women. Listening to her describe it, it's not a gratuitous telling. Like, we're not just asking folks to sit through horrific experiences for kicks. The story really aligns with a lot of what the research tells us that Black women and Black people experience when they're giving birth, from being more likely to be drug tested when they go to hospitals, um, the sense of isolation, the sense of dismissal, the sense of disrespect, but also the tragic outcomes and the complications. Black women are more likely to experience preterm births. They're more likely to experience stillbirths. They're more likely to experience grave complications. Mimi has experienced all of those things, and so have many of her clients. I also want to ask about what your reporting has shown around Texas in particular, where where Mimi is living and working, and how the maternal health problems that we see around the country are particularly acute in Texas. You know, so the report that the state put out in December 2022 shows that Black women in Texas are twice as likely to die as their white peers. They are four times as likely to die as their Latinx peers. Mm. And those disparities carry over when we think of grave medical complications. You know, the report showed that 90 percent of pregnancy-related deaths in the state of Texas are preventable. And not only are they preventable, but the report points the finger at the provider, the clinic, the the system level, the, the system is to blame for the overwhelming majority of those deaths. And so the thing that Mimi, as well as her clients, you know, what they really talk about 
One woman described the underground network of nurses whose goal it is to make sure that nothing bad happens to the Black mom and her mixed feelings about that. Because on the one hand, of course, she felt really good that there was this group of nurses who were so focused and concentrating on making sure nothing bad happens to the Black mom. That's how she described it. But also the fact that that was even something that they had to do that was front of mind for them to come to her and say, don't worry, we'll get you through this. We'll make sure nothing bad happens. We'll kind of give you the breakdown of which doctor and, and explain it to you differently when they leave the room. Hmm. She was not expecting that dynamic. And the fact that it even existed, it made her sad, but it gave her pause and it kind of made her feel less safe. Hmm. Like the fact that... Nurses feel like they have to be the safety net because doctors are talking too fast. Doctors are not really paying attention. They're not explaining things in a way that patients can understand. The fact that that is part of the whole kind of nexus made her think, what is going on here? How can, like, how can this be real? But it is very real. And not everybody lucks out to have the underground network of nurses. Yeah, yeah. You know, I feel like I've had this conversation so many times before. I'm sure you have, too. Where you hear these numbers, you hear the horror stories about famous people, people like Serena Williams, who have really traumatic births or who really have to advocate for themselves in in, in high-risk situations. And it kind of sends this message that to have birth as a woman in America, and particularly as a Black woman in America, is a dangerous thing. And I wonder if you can speak to that, like, what that message does when people hear it. Several of Mimi's clients, and then not just Mimi's clients, but other Black women that I've spoken to, say the narrative around the maternal health crisis, but specifically the Black maternal health crisis, it creates a cycle of fear and hypervigilance is really what it does. It's like add it to the list, driving while Black, shopping while Black, Mm -hmm. birthing while Black. You know, fear of, am I going to survive? Is my baby going to survive? And all of the things that then women do to try to mitigate and insulate themselves from really catastrophic events. Um, And that in and of itself, that hypervigilance, the hiring, oh, I got to have a black OB. I got to hire a doula. Let me make sure my blood pressure is okay. Let me start working out. Oh, nope, got to relax. Oh, maybe I should take some pictures. Don't take pictures. Oh, <laughs> right? Like, mm-hmm. all of the things that we think of, mm-hmm. that is also a source of stress. So the way that you're trying to cope with the stress is a source of stress. That in and of itself can cause your body's stress reactions to spike and peak, just ruminating, just thinking about these mm-hmm. things. It can affect your blood pressure. It can affect your cardiovascular system. But stress can also do a whole host of things, not just to you, but to the child you're gestating while pregnant. And there's some research that shows it can actually change the structure and texture of a woman's placenta. So given all that, the Mm -hmm. very real risks, but also the potentially damaging effects of, like, thinking about those risks Mm -hmm. and ruminating on the horror stories that you've heard from other people, what what are the solutions? Like, what are the steps that people can take, and especially Black families, to mitigate that risk or to find a better way? You know, it's interesting. There are a few things you can do because, number one, when we think about the Black maternal health crisis, you have to think about the system, right? We've said it's preventable. So 
You know, a lot of researchers say even just the way we talk about the Black maternal health crises, instead of talking about the brokenness of Black bodies, for lack of a better explanation, mm-hmm. talk about mm-hmm. the system. Because quite often, you know, when we talk about— It's not you. It's not your body that is is the reason why exactly. you're having these, like, disparate effects and, and horrible birth experiences. Right. It's but not, it's a system. It's a system. So one of the things that comes with having a, a doula— is also this knowing that, like, you, your body isn't, like, you're not defective because you have high blood pressure. There's a whole host of things that could be contributing to this high blood pressure. But give yourself some grace. Find some joy. But you can't be stressed out ruminating thinking about these things all the time or your blood pressure is always going to be through the roof. You're always kind of going to be primed and in a defensive crouch. So that's the first thing. This is a systemic level issue. But it also manifests like one person at a time. And so, you know, if you think about what doulas say, know what the risk factors are for common conditions. Swollen feet, swollen face, swollen hands. Mm. Yes, swollen feet, swollen hands. They come with the territory of being pregnant, but they can also be indicators that something is really going on that should be checked out immediately. Over and over, maternal health advocates, reproductive health advocates, clinicians have said to me, speak up and speak out. If there is, if you feel like there is something going on with your body, raise the issue. Don't, you know, a lot of times we don't ask questions because we don't want to be seen as problematic. Um, What if it's really nothing and I'm just kind of raising a ruckus and Mm -hmm. a fuss? I don't want to be seen as difficult. I don't want to be seen as problematic. But in this instance, they say, stop, ask the question, raise the question, raise Mm -hmm. the issue. So kind of speak up, speak out, know the warning signs, um, create a team that is dedicated to your care. And so family and friends and, and your kind of intimate support system are the bedrock of that. Folks who are going to advocate for you when you are feeling vulnerable, when you aren't sure the right questions to ask, when you are overwhelmed. Somebody who is going to be in there and say, no, stop, like, we need to we need to pause and ask some questions. That might be hiring a doula. So so pregnant people are hiring doulas themselves, yes. right? Are they covered by insurance? Some states have begun to have, like, their Medicaid programs have begun to cover it. But by and large, it is, you pay out of pocket for a doula. Um, they're not covered by most insurances. And even the doulas themselves kind of worry about the whole administrative apparatus that they would need to set up to be able to bill for insurance, to be able to bill Medicaid, um, because they are usually independent contractors, kind of mom and pop shops. And so, yeah, you hire them and you bring them with you. I mean, that th- that seems like a great option and solution for people. But as you say, people are generally paying out of pocket for these yes. doulas. They're not cheap. And also, are they even, like, available? Or, or are like, are there enough doulas? Are there particularly enough Black doulas for Black pregnant people to actually, like, have some meaningful effect on this problem? So the answer is no, there are not enough doulas. Research shows doulas only attend about 6% of births in the U.S. And, you know, in speaking with folks, the overwhelming majority of the doulas and the births that they attend are not for people of color. It was a very white space when the, when the doulas and the, and the doula movement kind of first started. And it is growing. There's a kind of community doula movement, and there's a big push to 
grow the network of doulas, particularly doulas of color, Black doulas, Latinx doulas, Indigenous doulas, folks who come from the communities that they are serving. So there is this huge need. The federal government is shelling out grant money to try to, you know, increase the workforce. Mm. States are doing that as well. States are now trying to say, oh, we know there's an access problem, so let's have Medicaid. You know, Medicaid covers 40% of births in the U.S., so why not extend Medicaid coverage to doula care? But doulas are not a panacea. Mm -hmm. Until you begin to really look at some of these larger systemic issues, a doula can only do but so much, Mm -hmm. you know, to plug the holes. So coming back to Mimi, now that she has built this business around helping other women avoid the experiences that she had, what has that been like for her, being on the other side of this? For Mimi, being on the other side of this has uh, made her realize she needs to be more hands-on. She loved being a doula. She was overwhelmed by being a doula. It was a very stressful period for me. Just naturally, as a birth worker, um, sometimes it can be hard to not only set the boundaries, but stick to them. Because you just want to help, like you know, but there's only so much one person can do. You know, part of the experience of being overwhelmed when it comes to not just hospital births, but some of the experiences that her clients have had and why they're so, they're so emotional is that she has felt that she has not been able to give them the experience that they want. And she wants to be more hands-on. She wants more control so that she can direct the care that women and and pregnant people are receiving, not just at the moment of birth, but throughout their prenatal experience um, and postpartum experience because she has had to intervene and, and reassure some clients through some traumatic experiences there. So for her, the next step is to become a midwife, which is separate from a doula. They can quite often be conflated. The midwife is licensed. They have gone to school. They are clinical. And so she has decided she needs to transition from being a non-clinical birth worker to being a clinical birth worker so she can be more hands-on and more in control of the care that pregnant people receive throughout their birthing experience. And once I experienced all of that hands-on and... I was like, I could do this, and I, and I want to do this. Like, it felt good. So at the very start of this episode, we heard a little bit about Elise Hamlin and her birthing experience. Sherry couldn't take it. She was like, what is going on here? <laughs> but it was so good. But it distracted her. So it, it distracted me. It was amazing, but... Having Mimi at her side as her doula, having her there to squeeze her hand really, really hard. Um, And I'm curious, you know, for Elise, it seemed like she was seeking more support. She wanted a different kind of birthing experience than what she'd had in the past and what Mimi had had in the past. Um, Tell me more about what Elise's birthing experience was like with Mimi at her side. Mimi and Elise link up soon after Elise moves to Texas. And she wanted a midwife when she gave birth to her final child. And so she had been interviewing midwives. And Mimi at the time was working with the midwife that Elise decided to give birth with. And that's how the two of them met. And that's how the two of them linked up. I was so excited and so nervous. And then I'm sitting here texting her outside of the room. 
And she was like, <laughs> she didn't text me back. She just yelled, come in. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and it was so warm and so welcoming. I think doula is like the second spouse almost <laughs> because they're able to have your back. It's very personal. Mimi spends a lot of time with her clients, as do a lot of doulas that I talk to, just reassuring whenever they need her. So I call Mimi and Mimi tells me, you know, when you're ready for me to come, I'll be there. I'm sitting down and my water broke and I'm like excited, but then scared and grossed out. Like, is, is this really happening? So Mimi shows up and is there by her side pretty much the entire time. I clung to Mimi mm-hmm. <laughs> like a crab in the sea. Yeah. We built a bond. It was amazing. And she told, instructed me the things to do, like how to, you know, make sure that I was comfortable. And she just describes, you know, laughing and them walking around her apartment complex because she didn't give birth quickly. It wasn't like a, an hour type of a situation. So I put out the ball. I had my, my birth playlist ready. Everything from Erica Badu and Jill Scott... But bouncing on the exercise ball, she just remembers a very communal experience. I danced around, I caught my family. A very relaxing experience, but also feeling empowered. So did you give birth in a tub or in the bed? We didn't, we didn't make it to the tub. Um, my, my beautiful friend here. Uh, <laughs> and after a long weekend of labor, Elise finally gives birth to a healthy baby girl. And my my kids came out and they surrounded me. And it's the best thing I could ever ask for. It's it's a perfect ending to a beautiful story because I'm never doing it again. (laughs) (laughs) And I think that is the biggest thing for her is that she felt empowered in that experience as opposed to the two experiences where she had given birth in a hospital and she did not feel like she had a lot of agency in those situations. Elise was so inspired by her experience with Mimi that she herself is now like, I want to become a birth worker. I want to help other women have this experience. I want to grow this type of bond with other people because she sees the need. She knows the shortage and she wants to help fill that gap. It it inspires me because this is what I want to be able to give back to other women. So for me, having Black women understand that this is a natural experience, that they should be empowered by taking control of their birth, that this is, that's what's important to me when it comes down to this community. So if we would have had the information or when you, when you, when you realize what you know now, the, how the outcome could have been for you, the other possibilities that were there, it, it's kind of like there's, it's a no-brainer. This is what's better. This is what's best for us in our health and our safety. What do you think the story says about the evolving understanding about the maternal health crisis in the U.S. and about the, the attempts to find solutions for it? I think this story shows how layered the situation is. It's a whole host of things that contribute to why the United States is the worst place to give birth among high-income nations. This coalition of birth workers decided that they really have to take matters into their own hand because the price of waiting 
for hospitals to do better, for governments to do better, for kind of large institutions to do better is just way too high. And part of that, they say, is really that they see Black pregnancy through this lens of power and potential and not pathology. Akila, thank you so much for explaining all this. Thank you for letting me chat. Akila Johnson reports on health disparities at The Post. Before we go, there was big news this afternoon. Mitch McConnell will be stepping down as Republican leader in the Senate. He announced the news in a speech on the Senate floor. He said he plans to remain in the Senate, but will be ending his time as GOP leader in November. I still have enough gas in my tank to thoroughly disappoint my critics. And I intend to do so with all the enthusiasm with which they've become accustomed. This is being viewed as the beginning of the end of an era in U.S. politics. McConnell is 82, and he is the longest-serving Senate leader in U.S. history. He's credited with reshaping the federal judiciary, making it more conservative. More recently, he's faced opposition from a growing wing in the Senate aligned with Trump. And he's experienced health problems. So to my colleagues, thank you for entrusting me with our success. It's been an honor to work with each of you. There'll be plenty of time to express my gratitude in greater detail as I sprint towards the finish line, which is now in sight. I yield for That's it for Post Reports. Today's episode was produced by Alana Gordon and Taylor White. It was mixed by Sean Carter and edited by Monica Campbell with help from Rena Flores and Stephen Smith. Thank you to Elahe Azadi and Dominic Walsh. I'm Martine Powers. We'll be back tomorrow with more stories from The Washington Post. <laughs>